morning. You will go ahead and turn to Judges chapter 3, verse 7. Judges chapter 3, verse 7, page 202 through 204 on your, in the Black Pew Bible in front of you. We're going to be going through the end of Judges chapter 5. Judges 3, 7 through Judges chapter 5. The first judge in Israel is Othniel. We read about his term in chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. This is the perfect snapshot of the cycle of the four R's of judges. The relapse, retribution, repentance, and rescue. The people of Israel intermarry with the pagans and they relapse into idolatry, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Then the anger of the Lord is kindled against them, signaling God's incoming retribution and discipline. And God does just that, handing them over to eight years of oppression under a foreign king. The Jews respond with repentance and tears. So the Lord graciously sends them a rescuer in the form of Othniel. The Spirit of the Lord is upon Othniel. He is victorious over the foreign king, and the land has rest for 40 years. So everything's going great. But then, Othniel, he dies. And I wonder if you can guess what verse 12 is going to say. Verse 12 says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so we're right back where we started. The Israelites have relapsed into sin. So again, God strengthens another Gentile king, this time a fat man named Eglon, the Moabite. And God gives the Israelites into his hands, and they serve him for 18 hard years. But the people of God repent again, and they cry out for a rescuer. In comes Ehud. And in a fascinating tale, the author of Judges recounts how Ehud tricks Eglon into a one-on-one meeting with him. And in this meeting, Ehud impales Eglon with his sword and kills him. And Eglon is so fat that the entire sword gets stuck all the way up to the hilt. And Ehud has to leave it. And so he gets out of Dodge. He just killed the king. He runs down to his people. He makes his grain escape. He rallies the Israelite troops. And he says, now's our time. The king is dead. Let's go and reclaim the promised land. And so they do. Now, finally, right? The land has rest. No. It only lasts for 80 years. After Ehud, we learn about Shamgar, the son of Anath. Perhaps he was a judge or maybe he was just famous for his military exploits. We don't know for sure. But either way, we only get one verse about him right here. And we learn that he kills 600 Philistines with an ox goad, which is just a thick stick. We don't know if he did this all at one time or if it was over several battles. But either way, the text tells us that he saves Israel. But again, it only lasts for a time. More could be said about the first three judges. But today, what I want to do is I want to focus our time on chapters 4 through 5. In chapter 4, we find a history. 
And in chapter 5, we find a song that fills out the details and illuminates the themes of that history. So we're going to walk through chapter 4, and we're going to let chapter 5 hold our hands as we go. This is a story of a strong female leader in Deborah, a passive and weak man in Barak, and an unlikely hero in jail. There will be war, there will be cunning, there will be singing, there will be weeping. And through it, my prayer this morning is that we will have an enlarged view of God and that this will deepen our hunger for godliness. So to that end, let's pray. Holy God, we are so grateful for your word. Would you come and help us now? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story picks up where you might expect. Israel has relapsed into sin again. The previous judge has died, and so the Lord has sold them into the hands of a foreign king, this time into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, as a king of Canaan, he's really a king of kings. Various Canaanite tribes have come under his leadership. They've gathered under a single banner. And under the rule of Jabin, the Canaanite tribes are enjoying supremacy over the Jews. We learn that the commander of Jabin's army is Sisera, and that this army is well-equipped, and that they are vicious. Chapter 4, verse 4 reads, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. The scene is very grim. What are the men of Israel doing when the bad guys come crashing through the front door? Well, they're not doing anything. Judges 5 verse 8 says, When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? Right? So when Israel started worshiping these idols and, and then God sent Jabin to conquer them, out of the 40,000 fighting men in Israel, no one picked up a shield. No one picked up a spear. It's as if they rolled out the red carpet and held out their wrists and said, just put the handcuffs right here if you would, please. And then they just welcome in the cruel oppression of their families. The men of Israel were gutless. They were being shameful in the way they were behaving and not protecting their people. That is until Deborah comes along. In verse 5, we meet the prophetess and judge sitting under a palm tree. Now, when you and I think of a judge, we might think of an older man or an older woman wearing a long black robe, taking their seat in the courtroom. But many of the judges in this book are not like that. They are less concerned with understanding the law and more concerned with war and battle and fighting. These judges are military men, raised up by God to turn the tide of battle in Israel's favor. In Israel's favor, And in this way, God saves Israel. But Deborah's not that kind of judge. She is more like the judge you and I think of. Here she is sitting under her palm tree where she presides over her court. And people from all over Israel come to her when they have a dispute about God's law and they ask her to settle their case. 
Deborah has earned a good reputation. She is wise. She is fair. She likely knows God's law inside and out. She has shown that she's able to listen to multiple sides of a dispute, discern the heart of the matter, and bring God's law to bear on the situation. She's shown that she's able to do this justly and without partiality. She appears to be a woman of the word, and the brightness of her wisdom will lead God's people out of the darkness of captivity. She doesn't wield a sword of steel, but the sword of God's word. So one day, she sent people to fetch a man by the name of Barak. Now first notice that she sent people out. That's already exceptional. That a woman would have the kind of authority to send out people. And it wasn't just down the road either. This was almost 60 miles that she sent these men out. On top of that, did you notice that she's summoning a man? A man named Barak. A man who is a general of 10,000 warriors. And he comes. So the Lord has clearly esteemed Deborah and set her up in a high place in Israel. But she isn't esteemed only as a judge. She is also a prophetess. And as a prophetess, she both foretells and forthtells. She forthtells God's commands, says, this is what God says you must do. And she foretells the words of God and saying, this is what is going to happen in the future. So when Barak comes, she foretells God's commands to him and says to him in verses 6 through 7, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Didn't the Lord tell you this, Barak? Now, we don't know when God first told Barak to go fight Jabin, but we do know that this isn't the first time he is hearing this. Deborah's saying, hasn't the Lord already commanded you to do this? And as a prophetess, this isn't a genuine question. She knows that the Lord has told him to do this. You can just imagine it, right? Barak's heart is sinking. He probably knew this when they showed up at his place and said, hey, you need to come talk to Deborah. And he shows up and she says this to him and he's probably thinking to himself, yeah, but you don't understand. This army is huge. These guys are vicious. They have 900 iron chariots. How do I know that God isn't just going to send us out there and wipe us off the face of the planet? How do I know that I'm not being sent to my certain death? And Barak, he's not stupid. He perceives that God is with Deborah. That's something he is very confident about. So he says in verse 8, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. To Barak, Deborah is a kind of talisman. He's only willing to obey the Lord if she'll accompany him to rally the troops and accompany him to the battle. Well, as you know, the Lord is not keen on this kind of doubt. And he also isn't keen on 
the fact that this man is bucking his responsibility and try to place it squarely on Deborah's shoulders. We've already seen over and over again that God can crush his enemies, that he is willing and able to destroy those who oppose him. And he certainly isn't afraid of iron chariots. It's just puny pieces of metal and wood. He doesn't care. But when God says, trust and obey, and he speaks through Deborah and says, go, go and fight, Barak says, I'll obey you, but only under certain conditions. So the Lord foretells the future through the prophetess Deborah. And she says in verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. More on that to come. Then in verse 11, the author throws in a seemingly random sentence about a fellow named Heber. We learn that Heber left his clan from down in the south, and he moved his family up north. And that's, that's basically it. But the narrator, he knows what he's doing. Right? He's, he's building a suspense. This is Chekhov's gun, a drama principle, which says, if you put a gun on stage, it absolutely must go off at some point. And this gun, as we will see, will indeed go off. But back to Deborah and Barak first. Deborah accompanies Barak up north to rally the troops. And praise God, they actually come together. They actually do rally around their guy. Right, this could have been an absolute dud. This could have been like one of those scenes where the guy stands up and he's like, all right, everybody, let's, let's get together. It's time to go get him. And everybody just kind of, they just don't say anything and they just have a blank stare and they're like, I'm, I'm not going if, if you're not going and I don't know if we want to do this. But thank goodness, that's not what happens. They gather around their general. They trust their commander and they prepare for the battle. In fact, we learn from chapter 5 in Deborah's song that six of the 12 tribes of Israel rallied together for battle from various places all across the nation. The seed of Barak's obedience is producing the fruit of courage all across God's people. And Sisera sees this, right? So naturally, the general of the Canaanite army rallies his troops as well. And he is no doubt confident that he'll be able to stamp out this little rebellion. No problem. So he gathers his people in the army in the Kushan Valley. And you can imagine the thousands upon thousands of Canaanites flooding the hills. You can see the iron chariots rolling into position. For 20 long years, these Gentiles have cruelly oppressed God's people. They've stolen their lands. They've enslaved their family and their friends. They've mocked their God. They've shamed their leaders. Will it really all come to an end today? So this is it. It's time. It's time to face the enemies of God. And where is Barak? He's hesitating. He's scared. Taking the plunge of faith can sometimes feel like a death sentence. But Deborah, the mother of Israel, she does what any good mom would do in this situation. She slaps him around a little bit. She shakes him out of his slumber. In verse 14, she says, Up! 
For this is a day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? You can see her hand on his back, kind of shoving him down the, the, the ascent, right? Because they're on a mountain. They're going into a valley. She's like, go. The Lord has given you the day. So Brock takes a deep breath. He begins the descent where blood and screaming and war await him. 10,000 men are at his heels and the woman Deborah, she's close by. And how how true it was (laughs) that God was with them that day. God routed his enemies and defeated them in spectacular fashion. Not only did he use the sword of the Israelites, but we learn from chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, that God set the natural elements against them too. Chapter 5 says, From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. This language of fighting stars is reminiscent of the large hailstones that God was known to send down on his enemies from heaven. Joshua 10.11 gives just one such account. And as the enemies of Israel fled before them, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And then we also see the torrents of the river Kishon sweeping them away, marching on with might. Imagine the Hoover Dam being just swept out of the way and all of that pent-up water being released on the Canaanite uh, fighters below. So these are the sorts of things that God is doing on this day, and it is a glorious victory. But there's still some unfinished business. Sisera, the general, he manages to escape on foot. He actually goes past the army up north, manages to sneak past them. And as he is fleeing for his life, he finds a tent. And when you know it, it's the same tent of Heber the Kenite. The same Heber we learned about in verse 14. The loaded gun. Inside is Heber's wife, Jael. And luckily for Sisera, uh, the Kenites and the Canaanites, they're allies at this point in time. So he's feeling good. He's comfortable. He probably just can't believe his luck that he's found a friend. Only he is severely mistaken. Jael says to Sisera in verse 18, Turn aside, my Lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside into her tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. So did you notice that Sisera, instead of water, oh, sorry, that Jael, instead of water, gave Sisera milk? Now, why is that? What's, what's going on here? That, that detail is not an accident. What's happening is a rich bowl of milk naturally relaxes the body and she's covering him with a rug so he's nice and cozy. So she's cunningly coming to him, covering him with a rug, 
giving him some milk, saying, yeah, I'll, I'll watch the, the, the entrance to the tent. You just relax here. Everything's going to be fine. And so Jael, or uh, sister who is on high alert, starts to let his guard down a little bit, starts to relax, and he drifts off into sleep. And so Jael tiptoes over to him and grabs a tent peg in one hand and a hammer in the other hand and drives it through his temple, killing him. Deborah sings, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water. She gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. And then Deborah slows it down, almost like it's in slow motion. Between her feet, he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. And then Barak finally tracks Sisera down, only to find that God had delivered the general, not into his hands, but into the hands of the poor, isolated woman named Jael. And in this way, God fulfilled the prophecy we heard about before, the prophecy that he spoke through Deborah, that the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman and that Barak will not get the glory. And so God has struck a death blow against Jabin, the king of the Canaanites. His army is defeated. His general is dead. Israel reclaims their freedom. And the land has rest for 40 years, at least for now. Okay, well, <laughs> what do we do with this story. It's certainly thrilling. Right? That's, that's interesting. What does it mean for our lives? I've got three applications for you. Three applications. Application number one. Be a woman of the word. Deborah knew God's word so well that she could preside over Israel like something similar to a Supreme Court judge. If someone needed to know what God's word said about something, she was knowledgeable and skillful enough to apply it to any situation. So of course, we should all strive to know our Bibles better. But here in particular with Deborah, I want to urge you sisters to study and love your Bibles. This isn't just a book for male pastors and theologians. This is God's word to everyone. So whether you have a PhD or whether you're a nursing student, whether you're a full-time mom or a retired uh, grandmother, whether you want to be a professional theologian or just be a more faithful church member, study and love your Bibles. Study and love your Bibles. Jen Wilkins says in her book, Women of the Word, we must make a study of our God, what he loves, what he hates, how he speaks and acts. We cannot imitate a God whose features and habits we have never learned. We must make a study of him if we want to become like him. 
We must seek his face. And sisters, you can know God more deeply through studying his word. And through it, you will receive the nourishment for your own life. But not only that, you'll receive nourishment for others. God wants to shape you more into his likeness. He wants to free you from the power of sin over your life. He will give you a heart full of strength for today and with hope for tomorrow. And you'll be more equipped to give your brothers and sisters that same nourishment, that same goodness that you have received. Just as Deborah can sit under her tree and give good counsel to the people who come to her. Just as she can go to Barak and use the word of God and use what she has learned to apply it to Barak so that he will rise to a station. So also you, through a, a studious and loving relationship with your Bible and with the God who wrote it, can give counsel and nourishment to others. So I just want to give you four really quick, simple tips on how to do that. Number one, plan to read your Bible. If you don't plan, you plan to fail, right? This is the most obvious. Start a one-year Bible reading plan. Pick a book like Judges that we're preaching through, or maybe 2 Corinthians, which we're going through on Wednesday night. Commit yourself to try to read it in a week. That's two or three chapters a day. Set aside your mornings. You know, if you make coffee every morning, then every morning make sure that when you do that one thing, you also turn to the scriptures. Commit to some sort of schedule to ingesting the Bible. Practical tip number two. Read a devotional. Right? Devotionals are a great way to take the Bible in while also getting help from other trusted believers. But we want to be sure that we pick devotionals that actually focus on understanding the Bible better. Right? We don't need self-help. We don't need moral nuggets. We're not looking for a therapy session every morning. What we need is the Holy Spirit to take the Word of God, the transformative Word of God, and cut down to our bones and divide bone from marrow. We need God to speak life to our dry bones through His Word. We need something supernatural and impossible to happen. And He does that through His Word. So we want a devotional that's going to take us there, that's going to help us apply the Bible like that. Third practical tip. Read good books. The best theological books help us read our Bibles better. They're full of scripture and they're illuminating a particular topic that the Bible addresses. And so those are good. But be careful, right? Because it's really easy to make a, a diet of good books the main thing or even the only thing that we do instead of turning to the scripture, instead of doing again what we really need and remembering is the Holy Spirit to take those words that he has revealed to us and apply them to our heart. It's only going to happen through regularly reading your Bible. And point number four, what I found to be <clears throat> the most helpful thing in my own life is read in community. You don't have to study God's word alone. Grab another sister or two. Bring it up to your husband. Start a Bible reading plan with somebody else so that you can help hold each other accountable. Start a book study. Get together once every two weeks just to read God's word and, and pray together. Don't have to have any sort of super agenda. You don't have to be some awesome Bible teacher. Just 
get together, commit to one another, that we're going to read the Bible together. Any of these ways will help you dramatically in being a student of God's Word. So really, it's, the truth is, Deborah was a woman of the Word. And you can be a woman of the Word, too. Now, in everything that I just said, you may be thinking, you're probably thinking, Will, I've already heard all of that. That's not new at all. And what happens is, is I do it for a little bit, and then it peters out, and I'm discouraged. And I want you to know, sister, that I know what that's like. I've been there. I do the same things. But remember that holiness is not a straight line. So often our walk with the Lord is two steps forward and one step back. The road is bumpy. So don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged when you feel yourself going through a slump. It happens to everybody. So maybe you miss a week of reading. Maybe you make it through your one-year Bible reading plan in two years. That's okay. Maybe you and a couple of sisters only make it three-quarters of the way through a good book. Yeah, it's not ideal, right? It's not what we want to have happen. And if you've been sinfully lazy or sinfully disinterested in God or sinfully busy, then repent for that. Turn away from those sins and trust God that there's grace for that. And then pick yourself up and go. Get back at it. You can keep going in the power that God provides. Strive to love and read your Bibles, knowing that it is God who is working in you to to work the things that are good and pleasing to him. And over time, you, you may be very surprised where you find yourself. You may find that you relate to Deborah in ways that you didn't think were possible. You may find other brothers and sisters flocking to you because you have wisdom. There's honey on your tongue. You're, you're able to speak the words of God and apply the word of God to the people around you. And as I say that, I just want you to know that that's not impossible. God can do that for you, sisters. Start by being a woman of the word. Point number two. Application number two. <clears throat> Be a woman who empowers others. So a major theme of Judges 4 through 5 is that the leaders finally rose up to the occasion. Listen to Deborah. Praise God in chapter 5, verse 2. That the leaders took the lead in Israel. That the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. And again in 5, 9. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. So it's interesting that in Deborah's humility, she leaves out what I think we are all thinking. The commanders and the leaders offered themselves willingly? Not so much. (laughs) Not until you showed up and you started whipping them in the shape. She was the one who had to urge Barak to follow and obey the Lord. She was the one who had to accompany him to rally the troops. When Barak was staring over the edge of a cliff, even though he had all the safety equipment that he needed, she was the one who had to push him over the precipice, right? She was the one who had to fill him with courage and say, the Lord has given you the day, go and fight. In all of this, Deborah is showcasing important aspects of godly womanhood. Deborah's personality is a force of nature. She isn't afraid to say hard things to anyone 
even a general. She's knowledgeable. She's confident. She's strategic and thoughtful and and resourceful. And she focuses all of these things towards empowering Barak to do his job. She comes alongside the one who should be leading God's people into battle, nurtures him into his role, and then pushes herself into the background, giving God the glory for raising up willing, godly men. So don't miss that. Whatever authority Deborah had, she used it to lift men up to their stations. Deborah's efforts here, in case you're wondering, they're not a one-off in the Bible. We see this pattern all over. So Pastor Kevin DeYoung says of the famous women in the Old Testament, quote, where these women are exemplary, it is often on account of the good influence they exercised in steering, advising, assisting, and coming alongside men. Sarah modeled respect for her husband. Rahab hid the two spies. Ruth convinced Boaz to allow her to come under his protection. Abigail dealt kindly with David, while also pleading forgiveness for her foolish husband. Esther risked her life and intervened to direct her husband to the true threat in his kingdom. These heroic women took chances and overcame difficult rulers and difficult circumstances. And they did so only sometimes as wives to husbands, as the intelligent helpers God designed them to be. So how should we apply then Deborah's example of using her position to empower others? Well, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, or whether you are a single woman working in the C-suite of a Fortune 500 company, Adopt a posture of humility, nurturing and helping. Deborah reflected this, uh, sorry, Deborah deflected the glory away from herself and towards the male leaders that God had raised up. Deborah nurtured Barak, albeit with some very tough love, into his leadership role. And Deborah was willing to do whatever she could to help Israel and her leaders succeed. So applying these principles It's complex, it's very vast, and I just don't have the time or the space to work out every possible scenario. So that's why I'm using the language of posture. Uh, pointing, Pointing away from yourself. A posture of nurturing the gifts of those around you. Just carrying around a general sense of helping those around you succeed like Deborah did. Now what I'm not saying, this is really important, what I'm not saying is that empowering others is the only thing that you do. It's not. God has uniquely given you all sorts of gifts, and he's given you all uh, all sorts of goals. And I'm not saying that your posture means that you should just throw those things out the window. Of course you have those things. Cultivate your gifts. Exercise your gifts. Set big goals for your life. But as you go, recognize the truth that you have been uniquely equipped to be others-oriented. Do this, whether as a wife being a helpmate to her husband or as a mom giving of herself to rear her children or as a single businesswoman who is leading in the business space but who is also nurturing the abilities of her coworkers around her. In this way, you follow the example of Deborah. And so to summarize what I'm saying, I'm just saying, I'm not saying that you need to sit down Far from anything like that. 
I'm just saying that as you go, you should also use your gifts to help others stand up. And that's what Deborah did. Which leads me right into point three. Application point three, be a man who leads. So Deborah is a picturesque godly woman, one that women should strive to imitate. But it's also important to realize that her leadership is in many ways a rebuke to the men in this passage. Remember that each time we meet a new judge, Israel is spiraling downwards. Each cycle through the four R's is getting darker and darker, further and further away from God. And the simple truth of the matter is that Deborah should not have to urge Barak and the men of Israel to obey God and to protect their people. She shouldn't have to do that. And it may also even be true that she shouldn't have to step into the role of judge. Where are the men who are stepping up and leading their people? Now, in our day and age, uh, this isn't as obvious to us probably as we read the story. But this would have been immediately obvious to the original audience of Judges. Deborah is displaying authority and leadership while the men are cowering. And they're waiting for someone to tell them what to do. And it's a bad look. It's not good. And God doubles down on this disgrace. When Barak hesitates to obey God's word spoken, spoken through Deborah, God gives the glory of victory to another woman, to jail. And that isn't a coincidence. From the greatest in Deborah to the lowest in jail, you can hear God saying to these men loudly and clearly, what are you doing? Why don't you start following my commands? Why don't you step up and fulfill your role? Well, what roles? Well, men, among other things, are designed to lead by protecting others. The women and children of Israel were under cruel oppression for 20 years. These are their families. These are their friends, their children. And Barak and the men of Israel, they should have been biting at the bit for any opportunity to go and fight and to stop this injustice against their people. And when the, the time finally comes, God says, up, the victory is yours. Go, protect your people. Now is your chance to finally do the thing you should be biting at the bit to do. But they hesitate. They're scared. They don't want to confront the bad guy who just busted in through the front door. I mean, you remember it, right? Barak was pleading with Deborah. He all but asked Deborah to put on her armor and go grab her sword. And Deborah, will you go save us? But nevertheless, God does use the mother of Israel to rally Barak and the other men to act like men. And we see that some answered the call. They received honor in Deborah's song. But then there are those who stayed home on the proverbial couch and Deborah rebuked them. What are you men doing? So while this obviously applies to physical protection, it's very clear that it's more important that we have a, a fervor for the spiritual safety of those around us. Being a godly man doesn't just mean being a good shot with a gun, but it means being a sin slayer. It doesn't mean you never cry, because very often the godly man is heartbroken by sin. It doesn't mean you're just a breadwinner, but it means that you work hard also to provide your family with the spiritual bread of God's word. This easily applies to us as husbands and fathers 
and pastors. Dad, are you, are you praying with your children? Husband, do you invite your wife to help you fight sin? Pastors, do you make time to care for all of your sheep, even the ones who maybe aren't as easy to care for? And it goes further than just that. Do you notice that all of the tribes were expected to battle against the Canaanites? It wasn't each family for themselves. This was a nationwide effort. So I'm not suggesting that every man should lead every woman and every child as if they are his wife and his kids, because they aren't. There are levels of authority, different levels of authority and responsibility. But there should be a general posture, there's that word again, a general posture of leading and protecting those around you. We are spiritual uncles to the children of this church, spiritual brothers to our peers, spiritual sons to those who are older than us. And as such, men, we must rise to the occasion. We should all strive to be godly examples that others can look up to. We should be diligently praying for our church family. We should be prepared to give godly counsel to a brother and sister. We shouldn't be caught off guard. Understand your Bible so that you can protect the doctrine of this church. Be a friend to those whom the world rejects. In essence, answer the call to be a man who stands at his post, ready to protect his family and his church with the sword of God's word. I want to make this even more clear. Brothers, do you not know that we are in the midst of a spiritual war? The bad guys have crashed in through the front door. They're here right now. Are you answering the call or are you sitting on the couch? Those kids back there and gospel kids, do you not know that the world wants them? Do you not know that Satan wants to drag your sister to hell? That principalities and rulers in high places, they want to destroy your brother. The members on the care list, they need your care. The older members in the church, they need your love. They need your company. We are all in the spiritual fight for our eternal lives. Drug addiction and sexual sin are attacking the front gate. Laziness and doubt, it's scaling the sides of the castle wall. The fiery arrows of envy and pride are being volleyed into the courtyard right now. What are we doing? Are we suited up for the battle? Are we ready to protect those that God has given us, to protect those who are around us? What this requires of us, brothers, is, is simple to understand. We can't just coast through our life. Our time can't just be used on video games. 
Our talents cannot just be used to build our careers. Our treasures cannot be spent just on our castle. We must be others-oriented, pouring out our lives and God-given gifts to lead and protect those around us in the appropriate measure until the battle is over, until the war is finally over. And it's not over yet. We must do this with all of our might and sometimes we're gonna fail. And if you feel the sting of your own failure, then know that there's grace for that. Get up, pick up the sword, get back to your station and we'll keep fighting together. So I wanna close by bringing the third woman of judges to your attention. Sisera's mother. Verses 28 through 30, we read about how she is waiting at the window. She's peering through a lattice and she's weeping. She's looking for her son to come home, but he isn't coming home. He made himself an enemy of God and the judgment of God came and the judgment of God went. And this ungodly woman's life, it ends in tears and the comfort of false promises. Her, ser- her servants tell her, oh, the sister's probably just dividing the spoils of war. They'll be home anytime now. But empty promises are powerless to provide any real comfort in the end. She knows that he is gone. So Deborah concludes her psalm by, about the Canaanites, about Sisera's mother, with these words in verse 31. So, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. So you might think, you know, this church stuff and all this stuff about judges, what does any of this have to do with me? You see, the problem is, is that we are all at a heart level enemies of God, gathered in the valley, waging war against him. And the armies of God are looking down from the top of that mountain. God's wrath is is just up ahead of us. And we don't know when, but at the appointed time, he will descend, armed to the teeth, bringing his just wrath against his foes. And it will result in an eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sisera's mother's weeping was only a foreshadowing of the weeping that awaits those who are, or who are the enemies of God. But right now, this morning, the two choices are still laid before you. Will you be an enemy of God and suffer the same fate as the Canaanites? Or will you be a friend of God and rise up and shine like the Israelites? How does someone become a friend of God? Well, it certainly doesn't mean picking up your sword and going to fight Canaanites. In fact, it's not really dependent on anything you can do. There's no amount of law-keeping, no amount of sword-fighting or joyful singing that will make you a friend of God. What can you do? Well, the sad state of your affairs is that you can do nothing. You cannot change the certainty of your judgment in your own power. But Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died the death that we deserved. He bore the wrath of God in our place so that when God looks at us, he no longer sees an enemy, but God sees a friend. (laughs) Praise God. One day, God will come back 
and he will destroy his enemies, but he will glorify his friends. And they will shine like the sun in all of its beautiful, perfect splendor in the kingdom of God, our Father. All that's required of you then is that you'll put down your weapons, that you'll turn away from your sin, and that you'll trust in Jesus for salvation. And if you do this, instead of knowing the terrible wrath of God, you will know the sweet friendship of him. And it will last forever. As friends of God, may we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be women of the word, who have a posture of empowering other believers around them. And may we be men who lead and protect those around us, all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Holy God, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for making us in your image, male and female. We pray, Lord, that we would rise to the occasion, that we would be godly men and women, and that we would give you all the glory for all of the victories that you work through us. And even now, we give you the glory for the victory that you have already given us in Jesus Christ. And we long for the day when we will shine like the sun as your friends in heaven forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.